This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. There are times where smart ideas spring out of really nowhere special, Uh, but there are also instances where smart ideas are cultivated more frequently in certain areas. Travel writer and former NPR correspondent Eric Weiner has taken the path of trying to find where are these most creative places in his book, The Geography of Genius. And Eric joins us right now on the phone. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, geography and travel are, are certainly loves in your life, but how did the tie with genius come about? Well, I want to state right up front that I'm not a genius. Um, <laughs> okay. So my, my interest in, in, in genius, I'm interested in genius the way, you know, say a hungry person's interested in a Philadelphia cheesesteak. Absolutely. Um, good. That's, yeah. Earn your points right off the bat. Get us, <laughs> get, get us feeling good here points. in Philly. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm motivated, like everyone, to be a bit more creative, maybe not to achieve genius. And uh, as you alluded to, I, I'm a travel writer, and I see the world through the prism of place. I really do believe that place matters a lot more than we think it does that where we are affects who we are, and that applies to happiness, to, you know, spirituality, and to creative genius. Um, Because if you look around the world, historically, at, you know, where did geniuses pop up? It wasn't randomly, you know, one in Philadelphia, one in Siberia, one in Bolivia. They've appeared in groupings, or what I call Mm -hmm. genius clusters, specific times and places. So I, I really don't think that's a coincidence. So the, the question I set out to answer in this book is, you know, what was in the water back then, and can we bottle it? What what lessons can we learn from these places? And, and as you said, this is a historical look uh, at this topic, and you've taken it back all the way to to Athens, to you know, to uh, old Chinese empires. I mean, you go way back in this. Yeah, because uh, genius is nothing new. Um, We may have turned it into a bit of, frankly, an industry in this country, the creativity industry, um, but people have been creative for a lot longer than the word creativity has existed, which, by the way, has only been in widespread use since the 1950s. Um, Back then, they, you know, in the time of Athens or or, uh, China in the 13th century, they didn't think of it as, oh, we're being creative. They were just doing their thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, you look at Athens as an example in 450 B.C. You had Socrates, you had Sophocles, you had uh, later uh, Plato and Aristotle, all in the same city at roughly the same period of time. Not a coincidence, and and not just a Western phenomenon. Uh, I made a point in this book in trying to expand our concept of genius beyond the Western one. So I went to China, and I went to Calcutta in India, Admittedly, not a city that most of us associate with genius, but for a while it certainly was. But then, with all of that, of those great minds in Athens, all the way back, you know, in in BC times, yeah. there there obviously was something about Athens itself that that allowed that to really develop. Absolutely, 
Absolutely. And, um, and I would start off by saying that if you were to time travel back to just say just before that period, roughly 500 BC, and you were sort of surveying the, the land, which was uh, a bunch of Greek city-states, hundreds of them, really, of which Athens was only one, uh, you would not have placed your money on Athens uh, necessarily because there were other city-states that were bigger, wealthier, stronger militarily, like Sparta, but they didn't shine the way Athens did. So the question is why? Um, you know, it wasn't that Athens was blessed with great, say, land. The land was arid and barren and mm-hmm. hardly produced any food. Um, you know, they had lots of sunshine, but so did other places in, in Greece. So it wasn't the weather. Uh, it was an attitude, and it always is an attitude. It's a culture. And in the case of Athens, I think it was a an outward-facing orientation. And by that, I mean they were great sailors. They they were they were great moochers, Dan, to be honest. Yeah. Um, this is one thing that surprised me, is the Greeks didn't invent as much as we think they did. Plato famously said, what the, what the Greeks borrow from foreigners, they perfect. The borrow is a generous phrase. They stole. Um, but they then did perfect. And, they, and, and that's always the case. It's the case in Silicon Valley today. Very little invented there, a lot perfected there. Looking at the various places you you bring up in, in this book, were there any similarities between them? I mean, obviously over time there, there it, it changes in dynamic, but were there any base similarities that that you found? Yeah, there's there's sort of a a set group of ingredients, if you will, that I found in all these places, and maybe they appear in different proportions mm-hmm. uh, in different places. But as I said, first of all, they're always there's always an, an openness. <clears throat> so psychologists <clears throat> investigating creativity have identified on a personal level this one trait, openness to experience, is the single most important trait in creative people. And it turns out that's true for places as well. Um, now, you don't see a lot of geniuses coming out of North Korea right now. Yeah, but why? You don't see anybody coming out of North Korea, really. <laughs> A few people, and, and it's a difficult struggle to get out, but you're yes. right. But that, that speaks to it. It's not an open society. It's not that the North Koreans are genetically inferior or they're not hard workers. Yep. Neither of that's true. It's not a place where ideas are coming in or getting out. And in all the genius clusters I visited, they were particularly porous that way. And one aspect of that is immigration. Now, whatever you think of the current immigration debate, it's simply a fact that uh, – Places that produce geniuses tend to have more open policies toward immigrants. It was true in ancient Athens. It's true in Silicon Valley today. So that's one thing, an openness. Um, A degree of wealth, you know, these were not dirt poor places. Uh, Florence in the Renaissance, good example. Uh, They became very successful financially through the cloth trade and through banking. And the Medicis, the patrons of that day, leveraged it. Mm -hmm. And they invested in the arts, and they backed artists like Michelangelo and Leonardo and many, many others. And were it not for their patronage, we probably wouldn't have all that great art that we admire today. Um, So in in a degree of competition, I would add also, um, but of a certain kind, a constructive, healthy kind that spur people on to greatness and doesn't just become this sort of toxic force that eats people up. Uh, obviously, a lot of people, when you think about the United States, well, will immediately think about Silicon Valley, and obviously that has 
really drawn a lot of uh, of the focus here in the U.S. But with the tech sector kind of expanding the way it is right now, and you see more and more little spots of, of tech genius finding its way into other cities as well. Uh, seemingly, it seems like we're doing a pretty good job of cultivating the genius in this country in general. Yeah, well, I don't know if I agree 100%. Okay. Okay. Um, and the, because um, I think there's some evidence that we are producing more talented people than ever, okay. but not necessarily more geniuses. So I think we've raised the, the floor but lowered the ceiling. Okay. Um, where are the where I mean, it's an open question, and we could debate it for hours, but where are the Charles Darwins, the Einsteins? Yeah. Um, we have the Steve Jobses and the Mark Zuckerbergs. And, you know, the the question, and one that I sort of had asked people at cocktail parties as I was researching the book, is was Steve Jobs a genius? Uh, and I'll ask you now, was he a genius? Say, I'm sorry, say it again? W- was Steve Jobs a genius? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, in partly, I think he was just a very good businessman. Uh, so, right. so you're hedging your bets. It sounds like, yeah, I, yeah, was, uh, yeah. The, you know, part of the problem is that Jobs just died recently, of course, and, and it's sort of too soon to tell. We don't have the judgment of history yet. But um, I, I think if know, I, I think if maybe if there is a level of genius to Steve Jobs, it was going back and, and making Apple what it was. You know, and, and turning it around, right? Um, but I, we, I think, we could probably agree that his genius operated in a fairly narrow way in a certain field. Um, the question is whether he transcended that field. And what I mean by that is, you know, take an Einstein or a Mozart. We don't really speak of them. We don't talk of Mozart as being a, as being a musical genius or mm-hmm. Einstein as being a scientific genius. We just say you were a genius, plain and simple, as if they, because what they achieved in their field transcended that field and sort of achieved, you know, a, a, a new level, a transcendent level. And I don't know whether Steve Jobs and his creations have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of early to tell. Um, and Silicon Valley, unlike Athens or Florence or some of these other places I visited, is kind of a one-note town, uh, albeit it plays that note well and in slightly different keys, mm-hmm. that note being technology, of course, but is it is it really interdisciplinary? Um, probably not. Florence, uh, obviously, I, th- I think there's a, a natural understanding of, of why uh, you add that chapter into the book, but, but Edinburgh, uh, e- explain the, the history there where Edinburgh kind of makes this load this list um, well the city of edinburgh in, in the 18th century was believe it or not the place to be which was extremely unlikely Forty-five thousand people maybe fifty thousand small even by the standards of the day pretty far north far away from everything else but you had an amazing amount of genius going on at that time um you had david hume the philosopher adam smith essentially the founder of modern economics, uh, James Watt uh, down the road in Glasgow with his steam engine, uh, James Hutton, uh, the founder of modern geology, Adam Ferguson, the founder of sociology, the list goes on and on. And it was a very convivial place. Some It's called the Scottish Enlightenment. Some people joke it should be called the Scotch Enlightenment yeah. because they drank scotch. Yes, you know? <laughs> absolutely. They actually drank a lot of red wine back then, even more than scotch. And it was a classic case of one genius playing off of another, 
they would get together in these clubs. One famous one was called the Oyster Club, where the likes of Adam Smith uh, and David Hume would get together every Friday at 2 p.m., drink red wine and eat oysters, which was considered peasant food back, back <laughs> then, and discuss. You know, um, conversability, as David Hume put it, was a, was a big deal back then. And it was interdisciplinary. You had people of different walks of life, different social strata getting together. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's fascinating is how many, it's how the, the Scottish Enlightenment affected the founding of this country. Um, at least one signer of the Declaration of Independence, um, Benjamin Rush, studied at the, at the Edinburgh School of Medicine. Benjamin yep. Franklin spent many time, much time in Edinburgh and actually was sort of M. Smith's ghost, ghost writer in a way. He helped him with at least one chapter in his famous book, Wealth of Nations. 844 Wharton is the number if you would like to jump in and, and uh, join the conversation. We're talking with Eric Weiner, who is the author of the book Geography, The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. You also talk about Calcutta in here, which uh, is interesting because of the kind of transformative change it has made over the years, and unfortunately more so how it's changed to the negative rather than what it was, you know, a couple hundred years ago. Right. Um, and I, I fully tell covers in the book about genius. Quite frankly, it's not a city that we associate with genius today. We associate it with with poverty and with despair, Mother Teresa. Uh, those are the images that come to mind. But, you know, in the late 20th, rather late 19th, early 20th century, it was definitely a place of genius. Produced a Nobel Prize winner, Rabindranath Tagore, Many a scientist published more books than any city in the world except for London. Yep. Um, but as you said, it declined. And um, that is something, you know, that about all these genius clusters, Dan, is they, they don't last very long. Right. You know, yeah. Maybe a, a couple generations, maybe a century if they're lucky. And with a few exceptions, it tends to be a one way street. You know, once you. Once you go down, you tend to keep going down. Right. Um, Vienna was an exception. It had sort of a, a double dip of, of genius. First, the musical genius of, say, 1780, 1790. Then 100 years later, the Sigmund Freud's Vienna um, blossomed. But that's, that's unusual. Um, look at Detroit today, um, having a hard time coming back. Sure. Um, all these places do. It's almost like you get one shot at this, and that's it. Yeah, I was wondering whether or not, you know, how much of a factor genius prior in history was towards, you know, the the future. And, and you kind of alluded to it right there that it's not like once you have that level of genius within that city that it just naturally stays there. It's something that seemingly it sounds like it has to be continued to be developed over time with other pieces along the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, 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 you know, there was a cultural anthropologist named Krober uh, back in the 1940s who talked about this. And his theory, which I'm paraphrasing here, is that it, it's like a, like a kitchen. You have so many ingredients in the cupboard. And you can arrange them in so many different ways. Unless you bring in fresh ingredients, you're going to run out of recipes you can make, yeah. and you're going to just start essentially plagiarizing yourself. And once a culture does that, it's, it's all downhill. Um, but I think, you know, let's take a place like Silicon Valley. It's had a good run, you know, pushing 75 years by some definitions, you know, depending on how you time the beginning. Mm -hmm. Is its time up? I don't know. But I think it needs to develop not only new products, which it's doing all the time, 
but new ways of being creative, right? New processes, um, and and keep the cupboard fresh with with new ingredients. 844-WHARTON is the number, 844-942-7866. We go to Rod, who is in Farmington, Michigan, with a question. Rod, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, great topic. Um, I, I had a question uh, around, I wanted to uh, um, ask uh, uh, Mr. Rayner uh, to further clarify uh, the, his position about Steve Jobs, um, you know, uh, uh, possibly not being a genius. I mean, granted, he stated we, you know, from a historical context, it might be too early to tell. But I would say that we could probably agree now that um, his creations, you know, does indeed transcend um, multiple disciplinaries. So, for example, you know, the 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 iPad. Um, and iPod Touch technology platforms, as an example, is 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 having us rethink or relook at how um, uh, how we study human technology uh, interaction, and it's caused a slew of changes and and, and other actions um, from those platforms. So I'm just curious that I mean, if, if you, he used the comparison of Mozart. And Einstein, you know, their, whether their product is, you know, musical pieces or their product is mathematical uh, 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 formulas, wouldn't you agree that his creations uh, do indeed uh, uh, kind of follow their same, same uh, way or same things or the same reactions right. in society? Yeah, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, you make some some very good points, and I'm I'm not saying that Steve Jobs was not a genius. I'm just sort of trying to put him in historical context, which of course is too early to do. But you know, he definitely meets one of the criteria. You know, and I, I'm talking about actually the criteria of the U.S. Patent Office for getting a patent, which I think is useful in this discussion. You know, your your idea has to meet three criteria: it has to be new, has to be useful, and has to be surprising. You know, a bit of a leap. And, uh, you know, the, you're, you're, the caller, you're definitely talking about usefulness or impact in this case, you know. And his, his inventions, his creations, uh, whether or not they were wholly original, have definitely impacted the world. They changed the way we do things. And by that definition, absolutely, he was a genius. Also, it's kind of a moot point in the sense that um, genius, ultimately, there's no absolute, objective, empirical definition, I believe. It's, it's what we all agree upon. And if enough people uh, are saying, as the caller is, that he's a genius, then he's a genius. It really yeah. is that simple. Uh, it's a social verdict. And um, you know, the, the people have tweeted about jobs, and many people think, yes, he's right up there with Mozart and, and Einstein, and I'm not one to disagree with that. Rod, thanks very much for the call. Uh, Eric, you also talk about, obviously, some of the characteristics uh, of, of geniuses out there. And one of the interesting things that, that you bring up that I found interesting is that the level of education that some of these geniuses have, it, the higher you get may not always correlate to being a genius. Exactly. Um, this might be discouraging for anyone who's on the Ph.D. track, but specifically— <laughs> If you have a Ph.D., you're less likely to be a, a genius. 
to achieve that status than someone without it. Um, we were just talking about Steve Jobs. Didn't finish college. Same was true of Bill Gates and Woody Allen. Going back historically, Leonardo da Vinci was a different university system then, but he was not a particularly good student. Yeah. Didn't speak Latin very well, which was the lingua franca at the time. Um, and, you know, this is really not that surprising because geniuses are shaking up the status quo. And a university, even a good university, is part of that status quo and will only tolerate so much dissent. So, um, you know, I don't think it's surprising, and I think we have to get rid of the sort of uh, jettison this notion of the genius is just a smart person who gets really good grades in school or has a high IQ. I'm talking about creative genius, someone who creates something that lasts through the ages. Right. It's a little bit of the difference between free thinking and structured thinking, correct? Uh, in what sense? Well, well, just like, you know, I mean, in some respects, college is a structured entity and the, the teachings within college is somewhat structured. Whereas, you yeah. know, obviously with Steve Jobs not finishing college, you know, a lot of what he has done or did over his lifetime was free thinking on, on basically on his own. Yeah, I mean, uh, college is drawing within the lines, and people who get good grades draw within the lines very, very well. Right. Um, uh, Steve Jobs will draw outside the lines. Um, one of my favorite quotes about uh, genius is from uh, the German philosopher Schopenhauer, who said that talent hits the target no one can hit, genius hits the target no one can see. Yeah. And uh, I think there, there's great truth in that, that ultimately being a genius is not about knowing more, about seeing more. Right. But you also mentioned that, that there are uh, several cases of people that, that you qualify as geniuses that, that also had some sort of a big life event happen to them early on in their lives, like a death of a parent or, or you well, know, something, something dramatic in their life happened early on. Yes, and something traumatic, really, something bad. Right. Correct, yes. Um, and typically the death of a parent. Um, you know, a famous study found Looking back historically, a disproportionate number of geniuses lost a parent at a young age. Um, others uh, suffered illnesses in their lives. You know, most famously, Beethoven's uh, deafness. Uh, Aldous Huxley was practically blind. Uh, Michelangelo had health problems. It, it almost seems that genius, you know, John Adams said that genius is sorrow's child. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I go that far, but clearly having some bad stuff happening to you at a young age in some people, and that's a key caveat, in some people tends to produce uh, a mother load of creative genius. In other people, unfortunately, it, it leads to despair and delinquency. And why the difference from one person to another, that's a great mystery. I don't think anyone has the answer to that. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.com. Dot edu.